Good to see everybody, uh, not least if you are new or it's one of your first times here, really glad to see you. My name is Philip, I'm on, uh, I'm on staff here, I'm one of the pastors alongside Paul. So as Ebiera says, we're continuing with our Ask London series, as are King's Kids out the back behind me. They're also doing the same series in an age-appropriate way, doing some of their own topics. And uh, our heart really as a church is to, I guess, be a, a church that both listens to and engages with the questions and the objections that real people have about the Christian faith. And you've seen already on the board behind some of the places that we're going in the next three weeks. So to that end, let's see what we're going to investigate and engage with this morning. And we'll roll the video. I think my God doesn't think men are better than women. Um, And I think the God that I believe in thinks everyone's equal. They say that women will have, have equal rights to men, but women aren't allowed to be the head of the church. Or God is always referred to in Christianity as a he, um, whereas I don't see God as being any kind of sexual entity at all. To me, God is just an energy rather than a sexual being. Um, I don't see God as a man. They're given all these little roles of, you know, oh, you can lead a little group or you can lead this. And so in all the texts, everything is he, 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 and men always um, very much being leaders or instigators. But you'll never have the chance to ever be the top dog. And women generally being in a more... um, derogatory position and again I don't I don't think the 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 godness that I believe in is that great we are really keen to have honest uh, clear questions and objections that is our heart and I'm so grateful to people like this who are willing and brave and eloquent enough to put their thoughts and questions to camera. We really, really appreciate it. And Dean, if you're here this morning, particularly to investigate this whole issue, then I'm really glad you're here. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and explore this stuff with us. I think the best way for me to summarize what's coming through in those comments and statements is as follows. The church, God, or the Bible has been or is causing women to be marginalized. The church, the God, or the Bible, or some combination of those things has caused or does cause women to be marginalized. I think that's the heart of what's coming through in those comments. Now, with regards to the church being behind that specifically, the answer is yes. That sometimes and definitely has happened. Over the centuries, the church has been party to uh, the marginalization of women, sometimes horribly so. And more subtly, perhaps, there have been many occasions where I think in different churches over the years around the world, women have just felt like second-class citizens as a result of the way different churches have uh, understood the Bible's teaching on gender. And as I said in previous weeks, this is not a get-out clause, but it's fair to say that Christians do get it wrong. Christians get it wrong all the time in different ways. And I guess one of the reasons why many of us are Christians is because we recognize that we are deeply imperfect and we're trusting God to lovingly change us. But I guess my question is, have Christians who behave like that, have they misunderstood or misapplied the Bible? Or is it because actually the Bible or God actively promotes marginalization of women? 
And I want to suggest this morning that rightly understood, God, through the Bible, is absolutely committed to the flourishing of women just as he is of men. But I guess maybe his method of doing so, given that he's creator, perhaps differs from ours as 21st century created beings. And I guess, would you not expect his method to differ, perhaps, if he really is God, if he really is transcendent and eternal and he has a timeless, unchanging ethical standard? Is it not inevitable that every culture and civilization at some point in history or around the world would disagree with him about some things? That seems a fair uh, suggestion to make. And in our case, in this part of the world, this time of history, one of the things that we disagree with God most firmly about is his ethic on sexuality and on gender. So, let's see if this premise stands up. Let's see if it is true that God is as committed to the flourishing of women as he is of men. One look at three things. One look at equality between genders. I want to look at difference between genders. And I want to look at the implications of that. I haven't got a PowerPoint this week because time has been against me. So I hope that's okay. Uh, it's just you and I this morning. So number one, equality. Um, you can't really, I don't think, I don't think you can, discuss the concept of equality between the genders without referring to the term feminism. Now, I think it's true to say that feminism means very different things depending on who says it and depending on who hears that word. We hear all kinds of different things when that term is used. It is a very loaded term. And when a man stands up and says, here's what it means, that's a particularly loaded thing. I'm very conscious of the pitfalls that are ahead of me. In fact, I think giving a talk like this as a man is full of a number of pitfalls. Hence, my prayer life seems to have increased uh, this week. Now, you might remember uh, a couple of years ago, a a lady called Emma Watson gave a very well-received speech at the UN in 2014. Emma Watson's famous initially for playing Hermione in the Harry Potter films. And uh, the speech that she gave has been viewed some 7 million times on YouTube. And it's fascinating what she says in just 13 minutes. She put me to shame with the uh, conciseness of how she expressed herself. And she said this, The more I have spoken about feminism the more I have realized that fighting for women's rights has too often become synonymous with man-hating. If there is one thing I know for certain, it is that this has to stop. For the record, feminism by definition is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. It is the theory of the political, economic, and social equality of the sexes. And she went on to describe that if that's what feminism is, then her argument would be there are many inadvertent feminists around the world who believe in that passion and in that vision. And she concluded by saying, the reality is that if we do nothing, it will take 75 years, or for me to be nearly 100, before women can be expected to be paid the same as men for the same work. 15.5 million girls will be married in the next 16 years as children. And at current rates, it won't be until 2086 before all rural African girls will be able to receive a secondary education. She said, if you believe in equality, you might well be one of those inadvertent feminists I I referred to earlier. And for this, I applaud you. I think Emma Watson's definition of feminism and what she and countless others before her have worked so tirelessly for has been quite patently an enormous force for good. Her sort of feminism is the sort that seeks to expose and confront and ultimately destroy the oppression of women by men. And I think that is vital and and bold and heroic feminism that takes the truth of the full equality of women and applies it to marriages and to workplaces and to cultures and societies and to churches. 
where occasionally or often regularly men have oppressed women. And of course, let's be honest, it's not only Christians like me and, and I think many of us who think like this. Emma Watson, as far as I'm aware, is not a Christian, nor are many of the millions that she's so brilliantly and expertly mobilized. However, the reason why Christians think like this is perhaps different. The reasons why Christians think like she does in this instance is not because of current enlightened cultural thinking or even because of recently agreed over the last 70 years human rights. The reason why Christians agree with Emma Watson is because of what the Bible has always said about women and the equality of the sexes. You see, right from the moment or moments as we discussed last week, at which, in which God puts creation into action, the equality of men and women is uh, clear to see. In Genesis 1 and 2, God says, quotes, it's not good for a man to be alone. He says that women and men, or he implies that women and men, or men and women, were both required for human creation to be fully complete, for God to then be able to say, as he does say, it's now very good. There's a marked difference in how God uh, talks about creation. He says that men and women have been created, quote, in our image, which is a fascinating phrase for God to use. He means that God is plural, the great mystery of the Trinity, that God is both one and three. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, a God in eternal relational community with itself. It's an extraordinary mystery. And therefore it needed man and woman to truly and genuinely represent the multidimensional, relational, triune nature of God. At this point, let me take a quick little pit stop to address one of the questions that came through, the objection that God would not be a male being. That's true, that God in the Bible is mainly revealed as a he or as a king or as a father. But God is not a male being. The lady is, is quite right. God has motherly traits that are seen in the Bible, for example. In his essential divine essence, God is neither male nor female. He's spirit, as was kind of implied in the objection. Both male and female are created expressions of God. Neither of them is more or less made in the image of God. Both of, our, both of them are created expressions of him. So I agree largely with what the lady was saying. And it's clear that in Genesis, right from the beginning, men and women are clearly, in God's eyes, the pinnacle of his creation. They're what causes him to say it's very good, as opposed to the rest of creation being good. They are equal in worth and value and dignity, both commissioned to cultivate creation and bear God's image to the world in harmony with each other and in harmony with God. That's the mandate they're given, to go forth and do that. Men were not given dominion over women. Men and women were given dominion over creation. That was the mandate that they were given, to go and do creation good, to cultivate it and to reflect God to it. By the way, if you're wondering about the reliability of the Genesis account and how that fits in with our understanding of scientific knowledge and so on, that's what I talked about last week, so you can catch up with that talk on the podcast. And Genesis tells us not only that this design for the two genders working together went wrong, it also tells us what will result from that design being broken. It tells us that Adam and Eve opted to believe the lie that true human flourishing would take place outside of the loving constraints that God had put in place. And as such, harmony with God was fractured 
and also harmony with each other was fractured. And the Bible's not surprised. Genesis is not surprised ever since then there has been fracture between the genders. Because in chapter 3 and verse 16, God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and your husband shall rule over you. I, I guess to put it a different way, he's saying men will misuse their strength in a domineering and oppressive fashion. And women will seek to control or be needed by men. And I think we've seen that in history right up to the present day ever since, not least in the oppression and marginalization of women by men. Whether it's in churches who through their tone or their actions have failed to pursue the flourishing of women. Or whether it's in the supposed locker room talk of Donald Trump of late. Or the pressure on women in business to be one of the boys in order to succeed and excel. Or more overtly perhaps in the countless acts of violence perpetrated every day all over the world by men upon girls and women. And the context into which Jesus arrives in Judea in AD 30 is a culture, a gender culture, that has been fractured by sin. Let me give you some examples of the kind of context into which Jesus arrived. Women were not permitted to study virtually at all, let alone religion. In fact, rabbis would often begin a religious service by saying, Blessed art thou, O Lord, for thou hast not made me a woman. Women's testimony in a court of law was considered to be virtually worthless, of no value at all in finding out truth in a court of law. A woman could um, be divorced by her husband for virtually anything, and yet a woman could never divorce her husband for anything. And there are countless examples of what I'm talking about. And it's in that context of a fractured gender relationship that Jesus steps in. And he steps in to usher the kingdom of heaven, in his language, onto earth. He steps in to bring back the original perfection of creation and the equality of women, in particular, into that context. Can I give you four examples of how Jesus goes about doing that? And the first one, in fact, Zoe referred to when she spoke at the end. It's in John 4. And Jesus, who's a a Jewish rabbi, remarkably is delighted to in the middle of the day, publicly speak to the Samaritan woman that Zoe referred to. Now, she was a woman, which relegated her value in that context. She was a Samaritan woman, so her value is even more relegated due to her race. And she was a Samaritan woman who had five different marriages. She had virtually no value in that context. And yet Jesus is delighted to give her hope and dignity and purpose and meaning. In fact, in the book of John, she's the first person that Jesus tells who he really is. She says, I I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, I'm he. She's the first one that Jesus discloses his ultimate identity to. And that's why in verse 27, chapter 4, the disciples come over and it says they marveled. They could not believe that Jesus was behaving like this. It was unprecedented. Second example. Jesus' disciples, the 12 of them were men, it's true to say. But there was a wider group of disciples of men and women. We read about some of them in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 1 to 3. And we find out that many of these women, fascinatingly, were the ones that funded Jesus' ministry. It's clear these women used their financial resources to fund what Jesus and the disciples were doing, which was incredibly contrary to the day. Maybe even contrary to some thoughts in our day. Third example, 
A woman called Mary sits at the feet of Jesus to be taught by him in Luke 10, 38, which sounds to us to be almost a bit derogatory, or at least a neutral phrase, sit at the feet of. But again, the context tells you that is remarkably radical language. Paul, who was a very, very well-known, highly thought-of young Pharisee, says that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, another very famous Pharisee. That's the language of a privileged person uh, sitting at the feet of a rabbi being taught by them one-on-one. It's like a student at Knoxbridge University going into a study having a one-on-one seminar with a professor. It's that level of uh, prestige that you're being counted. It's unprecedented behavior from Jesus. And fourthly, another woman called Mary is chosen to be the first witness to Jesus' resurrection. She's the first person that Jesus appears to. And she's the first person that's commissioned to go and tell people about him. The first evangelist is a woman. Jesus makes a big statement when he appears to her and commissions her. And remember, the, um, the value of a woman's testimony in court was virtually nil at the time. So just as an aside, if you wanted to make this stuff up, if the resurrection is a hoax, you would never, ever, ever have included the testimony of a woman to be your primary source of evidence for this happening, which I think is another pointer to the resurrection being true or certainly worthy of your exploration. And there are, I think, countless other examples of Jesus lovingly and courageously and intentionally restoring dignity and honor and worth and value to women and commissioning them to go forth and reflect him just as they were intended to do back at creation. And the early church continues this restoration of the equality of women. For example, at the end of Paul's famous letter to the Romans in chapter 16, almost half of the financial patrons and co-missionaries and deacons that he lists are women. Men like Phoebe and Tryphena and Tryphosa. Women who use their gifts and their resources and their courage to launch the early church into action. Jesus restored to them what sin had distorted at creation. He restored equality of value and of worth. And then he said, now go and reflect me to the world, just as I always intended you to do. So, if men are of equal worth, sorry, if men and women are of equal worth and value and giftedness in God's eyes and in the eyes of the Bible, even if the church has at times failed to reflect that, Are they the same in every way? Are men and women the same? Is there any difference at all? And that's the second thing I want to explore. Of course, the idea of men and women being different is, I guess, increasingly met with skepticism, if not scorn, today. People say, come on, look around. We've got a a woman prime minister and a woman running for president and women who see active combat in the armed forces and women who are leading brilliantly in business and all over the place. So can we just call an end the idea of there being any difference? And then there's also, I think, culturally, an additional move, more and more, to suggest that gender itself is merely just a social construct. That's all it is. So that's the idea, if you've heard it before, that men and women only act or think differently because culture, society, has trained them to do so. The belief that biology aside, gender is purely a performative thing. I was listening this week to a... Um, to a podcast, a woman called uh, Julia Turner, who's uh, the editor-in-chief of Slate, which is an online magazine and podcast. Incredibly bright, articulate, perceptive woman. And she would subscribe to this same view, that gender is merely a social construct. 
And I guess, of course, to an extent, she is right, because there are all kinds, those of you who are parents, there are all kinds of cultural, social pressures that want boys and girls to behave in a certain way as culture deems boys and girls to do. And there are all kinds of stereotypes that seem to want to shape men and women. So she must be right to an extent that, of course, culture is training boys and girls to behave in a certain way. Anyway, on this podcast, she then said she'd become a mother recently. She talked about the t- her two little twin boys, who are now three. And she said that she was determined that the gender of her two boys would be irrelevant, that she would not impose any supposedly male expectations on them. And then she said something else that I found absolutely fascinating. She explained that despite her attempts to see no difference between male and female, she said her three-year-old boys were, quotes, obsessed with trucks. And she said this. She said, there's a there there, and it's confounding. There's a there there, and it's confounding. But what she didn't mean was that all boys do or should play with trucks. What she did mean, I think, was there does seem to be something in my boys that drives them to be different from girls. What is that? Which I found incredibly interesting to listen to. And secular research does support the idea, or large amounts of secular research do support the idea of gender difference. So I came up with a fascinating piece of research released recently that says that when babies who are just five seconds old, the research shows that the boys are more likely to respond to jazz music and the girls are more likely to respond to classical music that the five-second baby girls are more likely to respond to facial images, and the five-second-old baby boys are more likely to respond to abstract images. To quote Julie Turner, it seems there's a there there. What is that? I think our observation of the world around us tells us that there is a there there. There is a fascinating, uh, very broad-ranging, secular cross-cultural study on sex differences released in 2012, I think it probably confirmed what many of us know or instinctively observe around us. And one academic summed up this massive uh, report's findings by saying this. Despite some exceptions, females tend to be more sensitive, aesthetic, sentimental, intuitive, and tender-minded, while males tend to be more utilitarian, objective, unsentimental. Now, of course, these are not rules. They're not hard and fast rules, they're just trends, generalizations that a secular academic was observing. But then he concludes, most scientists attribute typical male-female differences to some yet-to-be-understood combination of biology and culture. I think the Bible affirms that there is and there has always been difference in men and women. Now, At this point, let me just take another little pit stop and say I'm not really able to get into the issue of gender change right now. That is a whole different talk, that we would need a different talk to do justice to it. Let me just say this. As a local church, our desire is to reflect Jesus and invite everyone to explore him and to find community. In Genesis, we do see that God God creates two distinct beings. Not two identical beings, he creates two distinct beings because he wants to reflect the distinctiveness of the Trinity. So just as the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are equal in value and dignity and different and complementary in role, so God creates man and woman designed to be equal in value and dignity and different and complementary in role. And the roles 
And here's where we start to get squeaky bum time, I think. And the roles that God seems to allocate the genders, or one description of the roles that God seems to allocate the two genders, and I'm referring primarily here to the home and the church, I think is best described with these two phrases. Humble authority for men and strong helper for women. Now, I am acutely aware that they are loaded terms, and there are many Christians who would find that description pretty offensive. So if you're skeptical about the Christian faith, I absolutely get why you would find that distinctly offensive. They are loaded terms, to say the least. But let me just say, just because our culture has misused in many ways some of these terms, not least the idea of authority, I'm not sure that necessarily makes these ideas or concepts intrinsically wrong in themselves. And also, just because they clash so much with this particular culture at this time of history, I'm not sure that makes them necessarily intrinsically wrong in and of themselves. This is hard for you and you're still listening. Well done. I appreciate you staying with me. So Genesis 1 and 2 refers to the woman as helper, which to our ears does sound at best neutral and at worst, frankly, slightly demeaning. Like the idea that the man sort of needs a sidekick to help him do all he needs to go and do. But that really isn't the intention of the original Hebrew word. The text was written in Hebrew, and the word for helper that the Hebrew author uses is the word izer. And we think Moses probably wrote Genesis. And interestingly, he calls his son Eli Izer, meaning God is my helper. So it's a word to the author of profound importance and dignity. And Isaiah is used 19 times in the Old Testament, and 16 of those times the word is used to describe God himself. So it is a word that does anything, actually, but it does anything but devalue women. In fact, it's the opposite of that, because that word connotates or has connotations of power and of strength and of creativity and of rescue, and of support, because it reflects something about who God is. It's not a word that devalues women. It's a word that exalts value and worth, the characteristics of God in whose image women are distinctively made. And to complement that design of strong helper, it seems that God places a humble authority role upon the man. Now, this is not the same as leadership, You need to distinguish the two terms, which is why we see women leading in and out of the church in all kinds of extraordinary ways. What I think it pertains to is a sense of primary responsibility. The idea that the man is to bear the weight of what he and the woman jointly cultivate. There is an authority there upon him, which if it's used humbly and sacrificially, and servant-heartedly and courageously means that humanity flourishes. And we've said, haven't we, that the nature of sin is that it distorts this, ruins it in many cases. It ruins this beautiful design of equality and complementary difference. That's why we've seen men so often misusing their power or authority to oppress and to marginalize, including in the church on occasions. Or men refuse to use it at all. They withdraw, they go passive, they abdicate. Both are harmful. And equally, sin has meant that women have sometimes misused their influence to undermine or to manipulate men. Which is why both men and women needed Jesus when he arrived. Why men and women need Jesus now. 
Can I just show you two ways that I think Jesus uh, draws both men and women to him? Firstly, Jesus showed us how to assume the role of humble authority. He shows it to us perfectly. The Bible says that he had all authority. And never once did he use it arrogantly or aggressively or selfishly or out of insecurity. He uses authority to serve. He uses authority to make himself the least of all. He uses authority to wash the feet of his disciples, the lowliest task of all. Jesus uses his authority humbly to give dignity and healing to the marginalized. He used it to confront injustice and religious hypocrisy. That's how he assumed the role of humble authority. And secondly, he shows us how to respond to authority. Because Jesus also is the one who willingly responds to God the Father's salvation plan. He responds to the role of primary authority that the Father has within the Trinity. It says that he joyfully submits to the Father's plan for, for salvation. He joyfully goes to the cross. And he's exalted for that. He's honored for playing that role so beautifully. In that sense, I would suggest this morning that men and women both have equal opportunity to play the Jesus role. Men using authority humbly, sacrificially, servant-heartedly, courageously, making themselves least, last, lowest in order to promote the flourishing of others. Women have the opportunity to play the Jesus role by responding to that willingly, courageously, creatively, encouragingly, kindly. It seems to me that in the life of the church, when men and women play those two roles, something beautiful happens. Churches flourish. Marriages flourish. Kids have something to aim for and be inspired by. Communities are attracted to that. Let me just press on this a bit more. I think there is a continuing two-dimensional, I could even say multi-gender approach to perceiving following Jesus. Because on the one hand, the Bible teaches that perhaps one of the greatest consequences of the gospel is that anyone who follows Christ is adopted into the family of God as a royal son and heir. It's an amazing description of what it means to become a follower of Jesus, becoming a son of God. And that is the inheritance and privilege for all men and women who would follow Jesus. And the importance of maintaining onto the sonship is really important. Because in the context of the time, it was only the son who could be the royal heir. And so Paul, when he used this metaphor, is making a profound point. He's saying, it's like there's no male and female anymore. All of you are royal sons and heirs in a family and the kingdom of God. And you speak to anybody from a culture where uh, daughters are considered to be of lesser value than sons, and you ask them what this theology means, as I have done recently, it is beautiful to hear. There's no sense of, I want to be a daughter. It's like, I get to be a royal heir. I get to be of primary importance in the family of God, equal in dignity and value and worth. But on the other hand, New Testament teaches that the church is also the bride of Christ. So if you like, the sonship, is we see that through a male lens, which maybe guys find easier and girls perhaps less easy. But also we see a female, have a female lens to see what it means to be a a follower of Christ. The church is the bride of Jesus. He's the husband. 
And so through that lens, both men and women get to account themselves part of the bride of Christ. Which some men think, oh, I don't want to be the bride. That's amazing. You get to be loved and de- by Jesus, devoted to him, and you get to willingly respond to his primary authority. We have a male lens through which we see it. We have a female lens through which we see it. We need both for the beauty and the wonder and the joy of following Christ and being in the family of God. So, what are the implications? Last point. What are the implications of this idea that men and women are equal in value and different and complementary in role? I want to address, in some ways, the church, and I want to also address those for whom we've asked these questions and perhaps are here very sceptical about the Christian faith. First of all, church. When you track the design for gender into the local church, the local church should quite patently and clearly be full of men and women all contributing, shaping, leading, serving, teaching in the life of the church. Everyone's gifts being recognized and valued and everyone valued for who they are, made in the image of God in order to reflect God. Within that, it would be consistent to say there is a particular weight on the men to be sacrificially serving and honoring the women, particularly within the context of the home and the context of the church itself, so that they flourish. Now, in terms of roles, what does, that, what does this mean for roles in the life of the church? Let me just say this. That's what they are. They're roles. Jesus assumed certain roles. There are certain roles in the life of the church that we assume Your role is not your value marker. It's not your identity indicator. Ladies, can I gently and humbly press that upon you? A role in the life of the church is not an indication of your value or an indication of your identity. It's a role to be assumed for the good of the church. You are not what you do, despite the cultural messages that are flooded upon us to the contrary. So, For us, as we best see New Testament teaching, which I can't go into now, but I'm referring to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 as examples. For us, the creation, gender, design outworks itself by expecting men to hold the primary responsibility, the primary authority for the church under the ultimate authority of Jesus. In the Bible, they're called elders or pastors. I guess that's what our contributor on the video is talking about by referring to the top dog, which I guess we would refer to Paul and I. Now, if, if by that we mean that all of all the men and women in the church, some men assume a specific role and do their best by the grace of God to humbly and servant-heartedly and sacrificially take responsibility for the direction and the doctrine and discipline of the church, if that's what we mean, then yes, <laughs> that's, the, that's the role that we're allocating. Now, that's not where lots of other churches land. They'd have different views on elders and pastors and so forth, different opinions on this. And I would just emphasize that this is not the biggest deal. This is not the bottom line for us. The bottom line is all of these churches, some of whom we know in this very borough and love dealing and have great relationship with, all of us are united by faith in the same God who through the gospel of Jesus Christ draws everyone, man and woman, and those unsure, to his loving arms to be loved and known by him. That's the bottom line. 
For us here at King's, we are confident that married and single women will do everything and anything that anyone who isn't a pastor will do. Which for us includes lots of things, including leading life groups, leading clusters of life groups, leading kids' work, leading welcome teams, leading Sunday services, leading Sunday worship, leading boards of trustees, leading operations and administration as staff members, and so on and so forth. We want to be a church like the New Testament one in the Bible, as best we can see it, where men and women partner together, honoring each other's gifts and differences, and complementing each other, and reflecting God and what he's like to each other and to the community around us. I think Paul and I would say that we're continually thinking through and praying through all of the practical implications of that, and we're going to keep doing that so we find the, what we see to be the best outworking interpretation of what the Bible is saying. In short, our heart is not, or I hope it's not, what are women permitted to do? What are they allowed to do? What can they get away with? Our heart, our hope, is not a sense of what you're permitted to do, ladies. It's we want to pursue you so that you come into the fullness of your gifting, so that you flourish, so that this church flourishes as a result of you flourishing. It's not a sense of what you're permitted to do. It's rather a sense of us pursuing you, that you bring your gifts to the table for the good of the church, for the good of Kingston, and ultimately for the glory of God. Now, second implication. If you are more skeptical of the claims of Christianity which is why we're doing this whole thing in many ways, then we're really glad that you're here. So pleased you're here. And if you're not where we are, that's fine. And I'm guessing that what I've been talking about is at best archaic and at worst deeply offensive. But let me just pose a couple of questions that I'll ask you to reflect on as we respond in singing and perhaps even into the week. One question would be, is it not the case to say that surely God, if he's God, would have some views that are different to yours. In some cultures, what God has to say about mercy and forgiveness and grace are deemed to be very, very offensive. In our culture, it's God's views, it's God's views on sexuality and gender that I think cause us the most problems. And so my question, I guess, would be, if there is a God, do you really want him, do you really want this God to agree with everything you currently think? In that sense, do you want a God just like you? My second uh, invitation to you would be to consider the resurrection. The resurrection is the bottom line for Christians. Because it strikes me that it's illogical to say that Jesus Christ could not be God himself and have been bodily raised from the dead because he holds a different view on sexuality and gender from me. That doesn't strike me as a, a logical conclusion. My invitation would be explore Christ first. Explore the resurrection. Find out whether Jesus is God. If he is God, then that changes everything because he gets to say surely all kinds of things towards us. If he's not, forget the whole thing. The resurrection is the bottom line. Sexual gender ethics are not the bottom line. Okay, I want us to respond, as I say, in, in singing. I wonder if Emma and the band could join me. Um, I think I'm right in saying that the prayer team are already down to my left and I'm wondering uh, whether we could even augment that a little bit with a few more people. Um, if you lead life groups and clusters of life groups, it'd be great just to be augmenting our prayer team. And because I want us to get used to, a ch as a church, to responding in prayer for all kinds of different things. 
We believe God's with us. He's ever with us in worship, with us in teaching, with us in all kinds of ways. And so we believe it's a great opportunity to enjoy and receive whatever he's doing. If you're sick, for example, we'd love to pray with you. Believe God can bring healing. Whatever you're going through in this week or this month, whatever fears or dreams you have, why not come and get prayer? I've had a tough week, if I'm bluntly honest, and I'm going to be going to get some prayer in a second so you can follow me. But also, if something of what I've been teaching about has been speaking to you, either because it's hurt or it's worried or it's concerned you or it's inspired and encouraged you, why not come and receive some prayer? Ultimately, what I've been trying to, I hope, convey is that the heart of God is for men and women, women (coughs) and men, to flourish. And so I think God wants men in this church to be men as he designed them to be. I think he wants women to be women as he designed them to be. All of us playing our part, complementing each other, honoring each other, working out what the gifts and the skills are in each other so that the other flourishes, the church flourishes, and the community flourishes. What does it mean for you this week to be a man or a woman in the image of God so that we get to see, or your workplace get to see, something of what God's like in you? Why not come and receive some prayer? We'd love to stand with you. And as I say, I'm confident that people are going to augment prayer team if they lead life groups and cluster groups. I'm catching their eye now so they get what I mean. (laughs) Let's stand.